0: a time when young people went to college for a degree so they could get their foot in the door as a newspaper reporter or a radio television reporter or anchor. We used to recognize certain reporters for being great wordsmiths, others for their interviewing skills, and still others for their melodious voices. These skills may still be important, but journalists today need a new set of skills. These tools can assist them in taking a complex story based on statistical studies and help people to understand how that relates to them. I'm Bob Long and I welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Today we have part two of our interview with journalist Trevor Butterworth focusing on the new equation for modern journalism. Joining me for this discussion are Miami University Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell and Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. Our guest, Trevor Butterworth, is the editor of Stats.org, a joint project between the American Statistical Association and Sense About Science USA, promoting statistical literacy in the media and society. He's also written for the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, also a science writer, for newsweek so trevor we welcome you uh to this edition of stats and stories thank you for having me i boy i hate to do this because we could spend a half hour and i don't want to spend a half an hour doesn't deserve a half an hour but when we talk about statistics and journalism the one thing that just drives me up the wall and probably everybody at this table is presidential polling because i hear all these stories of so-and-so's ahead by three points and then i look at the margin of error and it's about the same so um when we talk about statistical reporting, that's, that to me strikes me as one of the great drawbacks of American media today.
1: Well, yes, uh, and, uh, and it seems to be an ineradicable problem. Uh, so I've been in the uh, – you know, I graduated from journalism school in 1998, uh, and every election cycle that comes around, you have the same old, same old, and then you have a raft of criticism. Why can't we do it better? Um, perhaps because it's just pre-packaged, you know, you've just, the polls give you a ready-made story that goes out with very little uh, effort expended on making it comprehensi comprehensible. Um, and the truth is that you, <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse uh, as in radio, as in radio to have, or TV to have blank airtime. Um, the reality of polling is that there really is maybe a lot of blank uh, uh, and, and not, not a whole lot of insight to be gained from this sort of thing. But um you know the the problem is so redoubtable that i i'm i'm not so sure you can actually do anything people like you know it's a it's a horse race and we've seen these trends We've seen a lot of baleful trends in the media coverage of politics, uh, from the shrinking of the soundbite to a meaningless seven seconds, uh, from the focus on the horse race over substance, from the migration of serious news coverage on TV to the, from, from the evening shows to the uh, you know, early morning uh, uh, shows but you 've also seen the rise of other kinds of journalism, uh, John Stewart and now David Oliver and Trevor Noah. Uh, um, uh, uh, the, uh, that seems to be the proper response is satire. Um, so when something is you know, particularly corrupt, you get uh, a measure of that 's the measure of the response and um, I I mean, the real interesting thing would be to know whether this sort of stuff bothers the uh, American public, or more specifically, the part of the American public paying attention. Or do they love it? Do they love going, oh, three points up,
0: (laughs) three points down. (laughs) This is so exciting.
1: (laughs) Richard Campbell, I'll go to you for the next question. Well,
2: I I think some of us do watch it as sport or as entertainment. And and, uh, I think knowledgeable people have some sense that these numbers don't mean very much, but they drive larger narratives of is the bad guy winning, is the good guy winning, who's ahead, who's behind. I guess one of one of my the things I'm interested in is one of the things that's happened to media is that particularly because of cable, we have a lot of opinion shows.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And a lot of good journalism – I'm I'm looking at the old nightline model that mm, Ted Koppel yeah. had where he would start with evidence. Mm-hmm. He would actually send a reporter to a real place to talk to people, to document, to find out what was going on. And today we have, you know, in the evening, it's pretty much talking heads. And there's very little money spent on reporting, sending reporters out. But we also are living in a world increasingly where we have – you know, science deniers—people that say, "Well, in this world, every opinion is—it's all—they're all equal. It's your opinion; it's—it's it's equal to anybody else's opinion." Well, we—I think we all know that <laughs> opinions based on evidence are actually better than opinions that aren't. Um, you know, we've while we have this moment where we're paying a lot more attention, I think. To the importance of numbers and quantitative literacy, we're also living in a world where that's at odds with people that want to say, "Well, you know, I just don't want to look at that. You know, that that goes against my worldview." I mean, how do we respond? I think.
1: Well, well, that's uh, that's really. Uh, I mean, there's there's first of all, we respond by looking at. Uh, There's a lot of very interesting research that's gone on in the uh, sociology of science communication. And uh, you look at the work of Dan Kahan at Yale, uh, who has, you know, really shown um, that, I mean, so the most, uh, the the kind of the big finding is that it's not simply a case of giving more, pouring more knowledge into the empty vessel of the supposed uh, uh, um, uh, uh, uneducated or uninformed American. In fact, in case of climate change, uh, um, he's shown that uh, people, the more science educated you are, the more likely you're going to doubt the climate change narrative in some shape or form. But I'm not, so, uh, so it's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure... We're in a worse place than we were when we had a real naive view that all science was right, mm-hmm. uh, which was the kind of 1950s, you know, flying car model of science. Um, I mean, and if you think back to the kinds of critics that that warned us about, uh, you know, the, the the kind of criticism, social criticism that existed, then not entirely uh, dissimilar to the kind of criticism you could mount now. You, you think of Paul Goodman and his. Argument that uh, technology was really a branch of moral philosophy, which was based on a view that science had sold itself out to a military-industrial complex that was, you know, uh, had worked with, you know, was 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 prote- in in was working with um, a system that could create a nuclear holocaust. You know, though we had some pretty big problems back then. Um, uh, so I'm not so sure that that people change enormously. There is um, Bruno Latour, who is a French sociologist of science, has, you know, made uh, a very important claim that uh, I think explains a, 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 an absolute difference now than in the, uh, sort of in the 50 years ago. And that is that the right uh, or sort of on the right side of the uh, the political pendulum, have borrowed a lot of the techniques and theoretical apparatus that actually used to be on the left side of the pendulum, which is uh, was a sort of critique of science, critique of epistemology, deconstruction, mm. uh, Foucault, will to power, all of that kind of stuff, and began applying it to, uh, you know, sort of things like The Twin Towers, Uh, you know, the 9-11 truthers, began to question, you know, to see everything as narratives, as narratives that can be deconstructed. And if you take that classic approach... A cla- sort of classic—that's the wrong kind of word. But if you take that, what had been a standard approach in literary theory, and you apply it to something like climate change, uh, you can find all sorts of ways in which the text subverts itself. <laughs> so, um, and he said, what is the monster that the le- have we we meaning sort of left-wing theory? from the 60s and 70s, what is the monster we have created? This might be a monster we've created, a, Franklin's mon- a Frankenstein's monster of theory. Um, the, um, again, uh, uh, I think Eco has the solution. It's not an easy solution. I think it's a very sensible solution. He said, we, we have to stop thinking about science as a body of facts. You know, you go into a house and it's fully built and everything's as it should be. But rather, it's a house that's constantly being built that And in fact, what you need to teach kids in school is the scientific method and how you infer reliable knowledge. Maybe then there'll be change. I don't know.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where, again, we're exploring the topic today, a new equation for modern journalism. And our special guest is Trevor Butterworth, director of Sense About Science and editor of Stats.org. And uh, joining me also, I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelist are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell, and John, we'll turn to you next.
3: Thank you. You know, I, the, the point you just made that science is uh, – that understanding the process is a critical part of, of being able to, to critically consume evidence. You know, I, I think of – and I've, I've heard – I don't know who said this, but that, that statistics is the language of science, and in particular the scientific method. Mm-hmm. And I and if you look at the formality that's that's implicit in in testing, in a statistical sense, it very much uh, reflects the idea of of formally evaluating hypotheses with evidence. Mm. And and a key component of that, and I think the part that that it, it's a conflict is as we, as we think about some of the points that you've made, and that is that that you have to be willing to reject what you believe. Yes, and that's there's a that's a fundamental touchstone yeah. of science, and if you don't have that you're not it doesn't matter what evidence you have
1: and that's very interesting like dan kahan has said it's actually when you see things when you see scientific beliefs cohering with social groupings it, the the barrier to rejecting a belief that your community accepts is actually very high yeah. um and so but really the the issue is is not some you know i mean at some sense science is powerless when it comes to those kind of allegiances, when it comes... uh, um, And I think, but but also in knowing that, I think we can begin to reformulate uh, some of the social problems we have. And the obvious one is that, you know, rather than talk about climate change, you talk about weather impact. And that's something that actually works very well with farmers who may be very suspicious of this kind of environmental left, you know, kind of uh, agenda on climate science. But if you talk about... If you talk about resource management, you talk about the impact of the weather, on. The, then you have a conversation. So I think these insights from sociology are actually very, very interesting.
3: But there's a – even with that, it, and changing the, the narrative somewhat to go to that direction, you still have the problem of of the uncertainty and the variability that's part of this. Uh, and and that's, that goes back to even the earlier conversation we were talking about the polling and the, and mm-hmm. the uncertainty and the margin of error. And I think that we have a, a real pushback against – even the idea of considering uncertainty and variability as part of a story.
1: I think that's a great point. Um, Tracy Brown, who founded uh, Sense About Science in the UK, uh, recently gave uh, a lecture at the, uh, I think it was the British Library. uh, um, And her entire talk was the need for us to really start taking uncertainty seriously. Because false certainty is a contagion that can poison uh, people's uh, acceptance of science. And in many ways the uncertainty is very justifiable. Now there is a countervailing argument that says actually in you know the re- recent issue of philosophical transactions looks at the issue of uncertainty in climate change and says that actually uncertainty becomes an argument for doing nothing you know no, you know it's being used as an argument for doing nothing because one 's uncertain but actually uncertainty increases risk. So uh, those the point is we need, uh, we, we need to talk about uncertainty more. And I think that goes – that sort of – on the one hand, on the other hand, was once considered classic awful – the thing your editor never wanted to see. <laughs> well, you know, maybe this and maybe that and then there's the other thing. And, oh, by the way, you know, here we have this. We need to really take that into account too. And, and the, the, the result is clear as mud. Um, and that makes a terrible story.
2: It works against the old – there's two sides to every yeah. story. Right? Um,
1: and Yeah. And, uh, but actually, I think being honest, when, when, when we have these issues where the communication is polluted, where people are arrayed against positions, not because they've read all the evidence mm-hmm. but because of all sorts of other uh, values issues – uh, we need to have, be really, especially honest, uh, have an honest conversation about uncertainty.
0: Richard, go
2: ahead. Well, one of the things John's brought up in this discussion about uncertainty um, reminds me that you know we're, we we do live in a world in which the narrative is the most is the dominant way we make sense of experience, and narratives are about a beginning and a middle mm. and an end. And uncertainty complicates. It sort of works against what the dominant. Symbolic structure are is a, in our society, and this is the problem that journalists have too. You know that what's the ending to my story? Well, uncertainty <laughs> is not something that we're very comfortable with, and I think this is most
1: cultures. Well, that t- to a certain degree, yes, yes, I think you're absolutely right. But you also have to look at the way people p- people are changing their behavior all the time. I, you know, trivial examples of this would be to look at my own country, Ireland. Uh, All but one county voted for gay marriage. 20 years ago, 10 years, 5 years ago, Mm -hmm. you would have doubted that result. An enormous change. You look at, say, the issue of trans issues. Uh, Again, a sort of freak show phenomena back in the 80s or 90s or even 2000s. Now this, the internet, has brought about a kind of unraveling of a key anthropological notion in Certainly, Western culture, which is the idea that gender is binary. You're either male or female. Now we're looking at gender as a continuum. Now, that may not resonate with all parts of the US or <laughs> Europe, for that matter. But the fact that if you look at where this conversation is now, I mean, that's huge change. That's massive. Mm-hmm. So people are capable of massive change. Um, you look, and from a more statistical point of view, you look at the way that uh, uh, knowledge was, uh, was divined from patterns, extraordinary, pa- extraordinary occurrences and patterns. You, you read the entrails and you go, oh, my gosh, the entrails look really strange today. And then you marry that against a phenomenon, and then you make a prediction. Uh, and OK, took a long time to get past that. But then you began looking for pat- ordinary patterns and ordinary things. In every- and then you develop statistics and probability. And so actually, we are incredibly good at changing our minds and our behaviors. Um, and I think, but I do think that may actually require bringing in anthropologists and cultural historians and technologists to actually create a good narrative of change. <laughs> um, I've seen in the sociology of communication, I remember talking to somebody and I said, you know, and they were saying, yeah, yeah, people don't change their mind. They just vote with their opinions, blah, 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 their values, da, 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 da. They, you know, what their friends say, who they respect on TV. That's, that's all like this iron cage of determinism. And I said, well, how does, you know, how do you account for the success of a Greenpeace campaign? He said, well, we don't really have a good theory for that.
0: (laughs) You're listening to our discussion of a new equation for modern journalism on Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Bob Long, and I'm joined by our regular panelists, Miami University Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell and Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and special guest Trevor Butterworth, Director of Sense About Science and the editor of Stats.org. You know, one thing I want to get into, Trevor, it just seems to me we keep looking at America, everybody talks about newspapers are dead, radio and TV are dying, and the Internet is everything, but it seems like the Internet really has made a huge difference in terms of I look at a lot of what I see in traditional media and and we've talked about how it's not serious. There's so much entertainment kind of that's crept into the news. Do you see the Internet as a way where people like you are able to really talk to people who are seriously interested in a lot of these topics that we're discussing today?
1: Um, I, I would say that, first of all, it's, it's, uh, um, it would be wrong to think that the media weren't full of entertainment uh, back in the <laughs> days of the 1930s or even the 1890s. <laughs> the entertainment was certainly different. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the fascinating aspects of British literary uh, history uh, and literary culture was that there were 8 million editions of the Penny Classics, Penny Classic Poetry, Penny Classic Drama, which is a very particular brand. So. Uh, in circulation in Britain in the 1890s, so there was a mania for literacy. But there was also lots of trashy stuff, which <laughs> doesn't get preserved in the libraries or or is buried out of sight, and we've all forgotten about. Or we've all forgotten how the, the America, re, you know, sort of was enthralled to Walter Winchell. Oh yeah. Right, um, right, right. Although uh, arguably w- Winchell was a better judge of character than Walter Lippmann. I mean, he did, you know, especially <laughs> when it came to Hitler. Uh, so and and predicting the rise of Nazism. So d- don't always be hard on the gossip columnist. They <laughs> <laughs> they have insights too so I'll give you an interesting example of why I think the internet uh, has improved things uh, if you, so remember back to the ALAR the scandal with ALAR which was the pesticide being used on on apples and 60 Minutes ran a big story on this and Meryl Streep spoke out in front of the National uh, Natural Resources Defence Council it was an absolute uproar and the result was very quickly, ALAR was finished, the apple crop was ruined. I mean, you had all sorts of hysteria, police cars chasing down school buses to retrieve apples from lunchboxes. I mean, there was all sorts of nuttiness <laughs> that went on. And uh, But that was it. That was a singular narrative. You know, CBS ran the story. People either agreed with it or they ignored it. Uh, I don't think you could really do – I mean – Apart from maybe what Volkswagen did recently, which was just so flagrant, um, the thing about ALAR was that actually, you know, according to people like Bruce Ames, uh, uh, legendary uh, cancer researcher and toxicologist, uh, there was no real risk from ALAR. But there was no way of counteracting that because uh, if you were at ABC News at the time, you had to say, well, am I gonna go to war with CBS? Well, no, your editor didn't really want, you wanted you to, to do your own story. The internet, for good and bad, has opened, has created all, a whole series of new forms of journalism. You have science bloggers. You have... you You actually had... You know, I remember because I was involved in setting up a site in 98 on for me daily media criticism. I remember journalists saying, you know, this is a waste of time. There's, you know, shouldn't be you should be out reporting stories, shouldn't be doing criticism, you know, um, which struck me as kind of crazy uh, because the media was an institute, very powerful institution. Why shouldn't there be criticism? Um, now, the Internet enabled a massive amount of criticism and some of it was really good. Now there were ways to share sources and spread good information. And while there's a, mass, a massive amount of rubbish, of garbage, uh, um, uh, the fact is that the, the the amount of good stuff, I really believe, prevents that kind of runaway narrative like ALAR from ever happening again.
0: John Baylor, go to you for the next question.
3: I, I think about these the sites, and I wonder how much of the sites are, are likely to be preaching to the choir. You know, that, that there are... That you sort of self-select the the sor- the input sources that you have, mm-hmm. and and you know I so I'm I'm going to ask you do, do you do you have an example of a of of a story that you think that this, the that there was some statistical insight that really made the story, or or complementary a story where there was a, there was some statistical observation that really killed the story.
1: Um, I think this happens all the time. I think, uh, I think there are, you, you know, um, it's not just in the questioning of the design, the correct interpretation of statistics, simply knowing what else is out there. I mean, one of the hallmarks of the way BPA has been covered, there have been thousands of stories on BPA. We've looked at uh, how the media has covered certain issues on this. Uh, we did an analysis at, at George Mason University in which uh, we looked at. So, so, what was the key piece of information that, if you as just a regular audience member or viewer or reader needed to know on this story to make sense of the competing claims? Well, you actually needed to know what the, that the European uh, Food Safety Authority did a series of risk assessments every two years. You needed to know those results. You needed to know what they thought. What? Why would? Why Europe? Why not the FDA? Well, because one of the narrative elements of the BPA risk story was that American regulation was failing because it wasn't uh, following the precautionary principle. And you got, you got, you got uh, 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 on CNN, there was a Dr. Gupta coming on and saying, we need regulation like Europe. Europe protects us people better than we do from these dangerous chemicals in, 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 um, in, in products. And the reality was, of course, that, you know, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, EFSA continually uh, said, BPA is safe at current exposure levels. We can't replicate the dangerous, the the studies that claim they're dangerous, and we're operating under the precautionary principle. So that's a pretty big chunk of information to counteract with all the endless number of scare stories. And so when we actually looked at, looked at the media coverage, only 6% of news stories mentioned EFSA's uh, risk evaluation. And when they were mentioned, the people mentioning them were industry sources. So they came. So wow. EFSA's independent mm-hmm. evaluation was coated with spokesperson for American yeah. Chemistry Council. Um, and so, of course, it never got. Treat it. You know, it was subtly uh, given a different epistemic or credible status than the independent scientists. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so there's sometimes it's actually really simple. It's just report the story. Don't even you don't even need the statistical data. You just need to know. You need to talk to the other side. Right,
0: Richard Campbell. We will go to you.
2: This discussion reminds me of uh, Neil Postman's 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves yeah, to Death, where book. he talks about uh, he talks about that the problem in the 19th century, he's talked about it in other books since then, but uh, that the problem of the 19th century was we didn't have enough information. And the problem of the late 20th century, and certainly today, is we have too much information. So one of the things I like about listening to you is you're very optimistic.
1: I'm, I'm completely optimistic. And,
2: and I feel like... Well, not
1: completely. But <laughs> there are, look, there are winners and losers, but go on. Yes.
2: I feel like one of the challenges today, and I see this with our students as they sort of retreat to their Facebook pages and their Twitter accounts, that they feel overwhelmed. I mean, it's certainly very different that there's so much information. We talked a little bit about at the beginning of just all the poll numbers that we just turned this stuff off. And our challenge is how to help them find those resources that are are reliable and valid, and and sort of tune out this other stuff. But they often sort of retreat into what you know has been called the daily me. By uh, mm-hmm. I'm forgetting who who coined that term, but uh, just well, you know, wh-
1: wh- what's been posted on their Facebook page? Yeah. Yes. This, uh, I mean, yes, uh, so many issues raised by this, the, the, by what you just said. Um, I think we have real problems with data literacy. Uh, you know, that the, the research carried out by the British Museum, uh, which showed that people raised on Google didn't know how to use Google effectively, uh, the k- kids, that is, um, that the best way of analyzing research was to actually have had parents who were brought up in the old card system. Because whatever they were teaching their kids was gave them an added analytical uh, um, uh, element. Um, I think. I, I, again an anecdote but maybe a telling one one of the most successful personal organizers I know is increasingly being asked to organize people's reading habits because there's just too much stuff mm-hmm. uh this uh, I mean so, so one potential solution to this is the way, <laughs> is the one nobody wants to hear which is that the 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 full extinct the the, the dy- you know if the internet is an asteroid hitting the news media the die-off has yet to really, truly happen. And Tim Cook's, you know, uh, the comment that Apple uh, are going to value privacy by uh, uh, using, da- uh, you know, ad blockers could really be a devastating uh, result uh, for a lot of news organizations who are, whose only business strategy is digital advertising. Mm-hmm. Real problems there. I can't downplay those. But the downside of every... Of all these situations are new opportunities to build new products. I mean, if you look at cutting, you know, so look look, look at things that are, National Press Foundation gave an award to somebody who I genuinely believe the future historians will see as one of the most uh, uh, important journalists of our era, uh, Brian Krebs, uh, Krebs on Security he was downsized by the washington post the guy was genu- was rega- widely regarded I, I know i did a lot of background reporting on on this topic was widely regarded by the top experts in cybersecurity as the journalist who really understood it he has started his own site he went off and started his own site he has broken all the major cyber uh, security scandals he is and, and he got an award from the national press foundation which has increasingly embraced digital mm-hmm. change Uh, And um, and he 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 gave a speech telling journalists not to be afraid to just if they wanted to go and do it themselves, they should come and talk to him. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's just one person. But you know what? One person who really knows who who knows the subject really well, who's providing value. So what happens ultimately? Well, you know, even people like Nick Denton, who runs the Gawker Empire, has said the race to the bottom is just pointless. You know, more ad clicks, more clicks on uh, is not the way forward. There has to be better content, and I think what I want to say is that um, is is that it's very easy to become uh, disenchanted or depressed about where we are in this particular moment and not see the broader cultural movement taking place, which is a broader movement to uh, to which is a, a broader movement of change in which new platforms are being created. I mean, when you, and and, and, and one key example, sorry, I'm I'm rushing my thoughts, my thoughts are rushing in all at the same time. If you look at the concerns about privacy right now, which will only amplify, uh, 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 and you look at the technological solutions that are in place, new protocols, new potential platforms, you have, you begin to see the moment we're in as the wild west we're the wild west of the internet the you know yes. the, the the end of one big era and the start of a new one and where we're going to be in 5 10 years time with data is going to be a very very different place mm-hmm. but the place that's going to be in uh, the absolute thing i think we can be you know really certain uh, uh, is that journalists who have the quantitative skills who can decode numbers into into good stories you know can tell into clear communication they, those people will, ha- will be the ones who will take advantage of the, that new environment. Trevor Butterworth, we want to thank
0: you again for joining us on Stats and Stories today to shed some insight on this new equation of uh, modern journalism. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us too on our program, you can send your comments to stats and stories at MiamiOH.edu. So be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we always talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.